All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, my guest today is Matt Janiga, and I invited Matt to come on because he's really an expert on how startups can deal with major regulatory issues, which is obviously the old underlying theme of our podcast and our venture capital fund and everything else, and especially in the world of kind of fintech regulation. I think he, he's really a noted and respected voice. Um, so Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I know, and uh, we're thrilled at Lithic um, to have the chance to chat with folks today. Yeah. So um, let's start with the basics. One, um, tell the listeners what Lithic is, and I'll disclose that Lithic is a Tusk Ventures portfolio company. And two, tell us how you got to this point. Yeah. So Lithic is a API-based card issuing platform. Um, we are trying to do what you saw companies like Square and Stripe and PayPal do over the last 20 years for payment acceptance for merchants. We're trying to make card issuance that easy. And that's kind of the high level in a nutshell. Now we have a whole host of clean, modern tools, um, great APIs, and uh, very deep technical connections uh, into the various partners you'd need in this space um, to go and operate. And so, uh, you know, it allows us to offer folks uh, modern, faster, more efficient technology, and in a lot of cases, also cheaper. And you've had a long career, Stripe, Square, Bluevine, just. Talk one. Did, did you always know growing up as a kid that being a regulatory tech lawyer no. was your dream? No. And if, if so, how, and if not, then how did you end up here? No. So it's funny. So I was a kid, and I think um, early on it was funny. I formed this idea that I wanted to be the senator from New York, and I wanted to be. Um, so first off, uh, for background for folks, I grew up in Buffalo, right. and we always had great representation from downstate. Um, but no one really from Western New York. And so my thought was, well, maybe someday I could be the senator and I could represent the Western end of our, of our great and state. And now you have the governor. Now we have the governor. That's right, which is really fantastic. It's great yeah. to have Governor Kathy Hochul, um, you know, who really understands the needs of upstate uh, and kind of what makes that region special, which is really fantastic. And actually, I loved uh, Senator Schumer. I loved having him be my senator uh, when I lived there. And um I used to think, wow, it'd be great, right? And someday maybe I can be center. So the funny thing is, as a kid, I used to walk around. And my friends used to joke and tease me about it. I'd be like, oh, you're, you're going to be center. And even in college, you'd be like, well, I can't drink because I'm underage because someday I'll be running for center. You were that guy? Up. I was that guy. Yeah. So I'm going to run for this one day. Okay. Somewhere along the way, I lost that um, interest and I wanted to be a sports writer. So I did that for a little bit. The um, Where did uh, you go? Well, so, so, so I was doing a bunch of interesting stuff in college and Sports Illustrated actually uh, had me be like a campus stringer. So I'd send them some news updates and they'd, they'd pay me like $1,000 each semester. And so it was a pretty good deal. Do you still read Sports Illustrated? You know, every now and then I'll get on the website, but um, we used to have the print edition growing up. How, how about you? Uh, as a kid, literally, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon and I would yeah. wait for the mail and devour it every week. And then when the national came out, I was really into that. And that unfortunately didn't last that long, but that was for our listeners who are too young to remember this, yeah. a daily sports news, newspaper that the Frank DeFord had put together. Um, and yeah, now for me, it's, it's a mix of the athletic, the ringer ESPN, and then yeah. Mets blog you could possibly imagine. Cause I am an insanely fanatic Mets fan. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing was it kind of similar to my interest in being a Senator is I'm unpacked. What are my career opportunities kind of here in sports journalism? You know, you'd run into all these people and you'd hear about like, ah, they're on the road all the time and they never see their family. And they like, you know, I'd meet people and they'd be like, yeah, I shifted from being the beat writer for the Lakers to being the editor at the LA Times. And it's like, oh, well, why would you give that up? And they're like, well, I wanted to see my kids and the, being an editor paid more money and my kids wanted a swimming pool. And it's kind of like, oh, and you got the picture like, it seems really fun. But if, if you 
you know, wanted a family or wanted some of those other things that might not necessarily be the best kind of field for it. So I, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I wanted to grow up, but my brother was a lawyer and I asked him what he did. And he was like, well, I look at Microsoft Word documents all day and I do contracts. And I thought, wow, well, that sounds a lot like editing the newspaper and I'm pretty good at that. So I went to law school for the wrong reasons. Um, and there'd be a trend on this. I did, did a lot of things for the wrong reasons and ended up being lucky uh, on things. Um, went to Minnesota, really good financial services um, curriculum there. And so accidentally fall into financial services, get my first job working at a law firm um, in Washington, D.C., uh, the name of um, McKee Nelson. And I show up and I'm like, oh, this is great. Like I'm like doing deals and it's exciting. And we're working with Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. And you probably can see the trend where this is going. Um, basically, unbeknownst to me at the time, because too too young and dumb to figure this out, we were doing all the stuff that caused the 2008 financial crisis. And we were doing collateralized debt obligations, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securitization um, at scale. We basically had one, we had, we had a side of every deal. We were there representing the folks trying to sell the assets, representing the banks trying to package them. And so heavily dependent upon that. Um, the other side of the house was tax law. So we were actually Trump's tax lawyers um, back in the day. He didn't have as many issues. Um, but so, so, so really, uh, but right now, if, if you are any of the various people investigating him for, for tax fraud, do you think that they should keep digging or do you think it may not be as bad as what some of us might like? Uh, I, I think they should keep digging, right? I think just based on what, what I've read, at least from the press, I, I never worked on any of those cases, don't have any inside knowledge, don't, that things aren't covered by privilege for me on that front. Um, the, um, the stuff I've read in the press seems to be he made one set of representations to the banks and another set of representations on his taxes. And that seems to me to be problematic. So I, I'd love to see um, Letitia James and others uh, keep keep investigating those things. Yeah. All right. So then you, you, you're working at a law firm, but at some point you go get converted from like regular lawyer to kind of fintech wizard. How does that happen? Ah. Super weird path. So um, because we helped create the financial crisis, we also rode the downfall. And the law firm, um, when I left law school, I worked there over a summer, come back, join the law firm, and we only survived six months. As luck would have it, as I'm kind of trying to figure out what's next, um, the House Financial Services Committee, and especially Maxine Waters, who's one of the subcommittee chairs then, is looking for a staffer to come on. So I uh, kind of right place, right time. Um, you know, ended up landing that job and had a very fun, very interesting seven-month experience. We dropped a bill to ban credit default swaps, um, which then had pretty much every major investment bank send their chief lobbyist and some C-level executive to come sit in my tiny cubicle in her office and try and explain why we couldn't ban credit default swaps. And what ended up happening on that? Uh, so the building go anywhere. I think, uh, you know, you, you, you know how the sausage gets made. I think it really was a messaging bill and, and the attempt was to try and drive things leftwards. So you're, you, this is where you could, you start kind of making your bones as, as someone in the FinTech space. And then yeah. when do you flip over into the private sector? So I, la I lasted about seven months. It was, a, you know, I was think I was doing 18 hour days and it was really grueling. I got really burned out. And um, a couple of the guys from my first law firm had made their way to a law firm called Morrison and Forrester. So I, uh, they called me up and they were like, hey, you know, they could see me. And they're like, hey, you know, you don't really seem happy. You seem run down. You know, and I was like, yeah, you know, like, I wouldn't mind going back to the law firm. And they were like, well. By the way, I think maybe one of the first people to ever utter that phrase. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I, um, 
I ended up getting a job at Morrison and Forrester and we were doing a lot of um, syndicated loan debt trading for the banks, but that dried up. So I ended up going to Capital One, really transformative time to be at the bank, but I, I'm stuck in deal land still and the market's still wonky. So there aren't like crazy deals going on again anymore, like crazy volume, but it's not as interesting. And I realize it's not going to move the needle on the stuff that I really want to do. Like I, at that point I was uh, dating my, my wife and I'm like, well, you know, I want to buy a um, um, engagement ring and do wedding and do these other things. I'm looking at my budget. I'm like, I can't afford any of that. You know, I, I'm the guy around the water cooler being like, oh, is anybody reading about Bitcoin? Or, oh, is anybody reading about Square? And people kind of look at me and like, yeah, yeah, you're crazy. And I think somebody left a tinfoil hat on my desk as a joke right at one point. Did you start buying Bitcoin back then? I didn't, which was kind of fool, right? It was like a hundred bucks for like a Bitcoin and I should have, but I didn't. And um, and and so the thing that got people to notice was the executives at Capital One started talk, talking about it. They're like, mobile payments is the future. Bitcoin is the future. Like we don't want to be intermediated by Amazon and Square and PayPal and these other companies. So, so you've seen this from a lot of angles, right? You've seen fintech from a law firm angle, from a, a bank directly, um, from uh, government and working at startups. What if startup founders not understand about, you know, the law, their legal needs, like what are their biggest misconceptions in your experience? Yeah, I think the the biggest the biggest thing I see is a lack of understanding around um, anti-money laundering needs, and it really surfaces in the know your customer segment. So um, for listeners who aren't aware of this, there's a body of law, um, the US has it, it's called the Bank Secrecy Act, and there's a whole bunch of other laws that add on to that. Um, and it says basically, we, the federal government, want the financial system to assist us for national security and crime fighting purposes to identify bad actors and really make sure that people who are using the banking system have a legitimate purpose to use it. And what that boils down to operationally for fintechs and for founders is you need to know who your customer is. So that's KYC. Um, and, and, and you also need to do sanction screening. Um, so if you're, you're a founder, and you're about to you know, kind of launch your company. So let's say you're pre-seed at the moment. And you're thinking, when do I need to hire an in-house GC? What's the rule of thumb? Ah, so, so, so that's good. And I like to separate that out. I think if your business is super complex and you have something really novel, and if you have a lawyer you really like that can help enable your business, and that's key, you need a lawyer who can safely enable your business. It's not terrible to pull them in, especially if you're well-funded. Otherwise, I think you want to get by with outside counsel, or you want to get by with some of the founder community, um, word of mouth, Slack groups, et cetera, because you can get a lot of informal advice from other founders, or you can get a lot of great advice from other resources. Uh, Lithic, for example, we're, we're starting to build out our library because we recognize this is a common problem for founders. Um, we're starting to build out our legal library, not just with, with precedents around contracts and things like that, but also guides on how to think about your KYC if you're starting a card program, or how to think about KYB if you need to serve small businesses or other things like that. So there's a lot of great resources today. I would actually argue don't get an in-house lawyer out of the gate. Wait till you have product market fit, and then start to think about it. Once you have product market fit, you have that market pull, and you start to generate great revenue. But um, there will obviously be exceptions to that. Right. And d despite your comment earlier about being really excited to work at a law firm, I mean, based on my experience, my friends at law firms, there seem to be a lot of people who would be happy to take on some more risk and trade a job that they find that's right. often boring for something that's really yeah. interesting, um, like being GC at a, at a startup, especially in the fintech space. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned, and it was a really key point, and it was a question I was going to ask anyway, sort of how the GC is part of helping you grow the business. 
I think, you know, my world or with my experience, there's sort of two kinds of lawyers, right? The ones who say no and the ones who say no, but here's how yeah. you do it. Um, I think the perception among many people in the tech community is the first one. So they just often just say, like, let's just avoid the lawyers altogether. That's, that's right. What yeah. I don't want to hear. How does a good lawyer approach a problem? Yeah, so I think the... Um if you're, if you're taking it behind the wall legal work, so whether you're sitting at the law firm or you're sitting in-house and, and you get a problem, I think you the first thing you want to think about is what's the risk? Um, and you want to try and think holistically about the risk because oftentimes, especially in a startup, there won't necessarily be someone at that genesis of that idea thinking about all the risks. And so as a startup lawyer, you can help spot not just the legal issues, but potential industry rule issues, um, fraud and risk issues, um, could be partnership or contract issues, uh, other things like that. Um, the other thing that I think the law lawyers need to do is they need to think about what what law applies, and then does that law restrict? So is, is it a hard no, or does that law shape? So is it something like disclosure based? We're like, yeah, you you can build a charge card, but you have to put these disclosures up first. You have to put these disclosures in front of the person before they agree to the contract. If, if you're a charge card company, how do you feel about the current markets? Is it good because people are going to need to buy more stuff on credit or is it just bad because there's less money in the system? I like the charge card products. I think I'd start with that. It's a nice kind of middle ground product, right? And for, and for, for listeners, when we talk about charge card, right, the, the kind of whole concept of a charge card is I know you're credit worthy-ish, right? I know you have some cash flow, you have a good job, you have something else but I'm not going to let you rack up a crazy bill. So the idea of the charge card is you have to pay it off in full when your statement comes. So let's pivot to privacy because that's obviously an issue that Lithic has worked on and something that you've encountered probably 20 different parts of your career. Um, what should, what is reasonable for a consumer to expect in terms of data privacy? Having worked in fintechs, there is so much data collection going on. And a lot of it's necessary because you need it for fraud purposes. So when you sign up and go to Capital One, in fact, if you read their terms, I think they're putting, I want to call it pixels. I'm not super up on all the different technology, but they put trackers on your on your browser. And if you visit their website, right, to go pay your bill, they will track you everywhere. Now they disclose this, right? They're doing everything legally. You can go to their privacy page, see the whole thing. And if you're in California, you can you can actually request your information out of the bank to see what they're kind of tracking about you and other things like that. Um, but it gives you an example of how sophisticated the largest financial institutions have gotten. And I wouldn't be shocked that Chase and Bank of America and others are doing similar things if they're not quite at that cutting edge like Capital One is yet. Yep. Um, on the merchant acceptance side, you see all the same things, right? These companies, especially for online commerce, or even if it's through these, you know, new readers, right? They're getting all this data off the card and they see you so often. And in some cases, they're linking it with customer resource management tools or um, um, CRM tools, right? Where the, you know, they're linking an email address, like Square has my email address. So when I show up and I go somewhere now, I don't have to type anything in to get my transaction receipt. They just send it to me. But on the back end, then it also means, right, they have the potential and, and you know, uh, I don't think they're doing this or they're not doing anything, you know, um, to harm consumers or invade privacy. But, you know, they have the potential to have a fairly robust data profile about you. So, okay, so let's go now back to your sort of Washington uh, data. Yeah, yeah. Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, and Joe Biden come to you and say, Matt, just tell us what the federal uh, privacy framework should be, and that's what we'll do. 
um, what's the answer? So I think this is really interesting because from the consumer side, um, so one, I hate I hate GDPR from the standpoint of now we have all those stupid cookie pop-ups. Actually, let, um, let's say, would you explain what GDPR is for this. Ah, yeah, excellent. Sorry, uh, uh, thank you for that. So GDPR is the, I believe it's the general data... Uh, protection regulation. Um, it's been so long since, since since I've had to think about unpacking that. It's it's basically it's a set of standards that the European Union came together and passed. And if you're ever wondering why do you go to a website and they bombard you with cookie pop-ups, which especially if you browse on mobile on a heavy mobile browser, um, like it takes up half the screen. The reason is because um, if someone from Europe is visiting the website they have to worry about GDPR compliance, or at least that's what the law firms and lawyers are advising them. It will the enforcement actions and you know eventual case law and things actually bear that out. TBD, it's too early to tell, but people want to be safe, and I get it, it makes sense. Um, in California, we have a mini version of the GDPR. It was crafted in a really weird manner in that uh, some wealthy person who valued their privacy, and I, I'm, I probably fit that mold as well, so I recognize the benefit of what they're doing, put a ballot measure on in California, which meant if you get enough signatures, uh, and it's not that many, it's like a couple hundred thousand out here in California, which is crazy because we have like over 50 million people in the state. If, if you get a couple thousand, a couple hundred thousand signatures statewide, you can, you can put a proposal on that will codify in law, um, new, new California law. And so he put something on the ballot that would create a mini GDPR in California. Two more questions. The first yeah, one yeah. is, do you have a... A really popular Twitter handle and, and Twitter account. Uh, your handle is Regulatory Nerd, and clearly it's carved out a niche for you. That we know that to be true. We also know it to be true that every scientist would say that Twitter is absolutely toxic for someone's mental health, and absolutely nobody should use it. Um, how, how do you reconcile the two things? And and if, if if they're both true, why do you do it? Yeah, you know, I I think that's right. The for me, I think what um, I found Twitter at a time when. Um, you know, COVID was hitting, locked down in my house with my kids, doing really heavy work at Blue Vine because we were instrumental as part of the PPP program to get loans out to small businesses, help save those small businesses. And Twitter was a nice release valve and also a way to connect with the broader fintech community. Um, and so I had been on Twitter because at, at Stripe, uh, we had such a wide dispersed um, uh, 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 staffing model. We had folks in Singapore and Germany and, and London and New York and others. Twitter was like our virtual water cooler. And so you could connect with some folks over Twitter. And in fact, there were some stripes that I didn't meet until the end in person, but we were regularly active with each other on Twitter, trade banter and stuff like that. Um, I think what I found in a way to lessen the, the toxicity of Twitter is if you find your happy place community, and I think for me, I love the fintech community. It's so vibrant. People are so welcoming. They're interested in sharing best practices, sharing information, and super helpful, right? Both over public Twitter, also over DM, now over the Circles tool and things like that. Um, that that's such a positive and happy community that if I'm worried about toxicity, I can focus just on that. And that tends to kind of keep me at least balanced or centered on things. Got it. All right. So that's, that's good advice for anyone who, who wants to be active on Twitter, even knowing that they probably shouldn't. Find right, so your happy place community. That's right. Find your happy place on Twitter. So last question, as we've established, you're from Buffalo. So it's a two-part question. One, um, are there wings anywhere outside of Buffalo that compare? And if so, where and what are they? No, there's the Buffalo wings are by and far better than anything else to get anywhere. And you can get them from any corner wow. pizzeria. 
Um, you don't have to go to Duff's or to Anchor Bar. You know, every small town probably has three or four local pizzerias, and um, they all have really good wings. Um, what are they doing that the rest of the country can't figure out how to do? So I think part of it is sometimes it's it's the cut of the chicken. So I think probably there's 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 some supply chain issues uh, or some 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 supply chain benefits of having the concentration in Buffalo, where they take the smallest kind of worst cut. People try and do a big chicken wing, but then they don't cook right. And in my mind, the benefit of the chicken wing is to get the flavor and the sauce. It's not so much about the chicken. The chicken's nice, but you want to have like a nice ratio and balance of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and so I think elsewhere you have it where the wings are too big. And they try and buy jumbo wings or they bread them. And I'll tell you, like, I have had a ton. I keep trying to find good chicken wings out here in the Bay Area and I can't find them. And like more often than not, I go somewhere and they bread the wings and I just throw them out. I'm like, I'm not going to eat this. This is terrible. Yeah, it's offensive. So, so chicken parts are to Buffalo wings as water is to New York City bagels and pizza. I think that's right. All right. Well, that's that's the secret of that. So if, if you are a uh, restaurateur out there and you're looking for Buffalo quality wings, uh, you've now learned the secret. Uh, so hopefully, you know, and s- send us some free wings if, uh, if, if, if you get it right. So anyway, Matt, this was a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 